We have a New Testament reading and an Old Testament reading this morning. Our New Testament reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 1. We'll start there. Matthew chapter 1, from verses 1 to 17. What I intend on doing for my, uh, this Advent series is looking at uh, the mothers of Christ, or the women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And so we're going to read Matthew chapter 1, and I know if you're like me, you're tempted to just skip over this because I'm reading through Nehemiah right now and I was reading about all the, the men who wrote their names down on the, the covenant renewal ceremony and I skipped over all the names. So I know you feel like this too, but we're not going to do that uh, this morning. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nasham, Nasham the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eluid, Eluid the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. If you followed along, there are, um, I believe, five women mentioned in the genealogy. The first is Tamar, the second is Rahab, the third is Ruth, uh, the fourth is Bathsheba, the mother who had been Uriah's wife, um, and then the fifth is Mary. Um, we don't have enough Sundays to do all of them, so I had to choose which one to skip, and I'm skipping Ruth. Sorry. Um, I will pull her in to the story as we go along, okay? So today we're looking at Tamar's story, though, and that's in Genesis 38, and that can be found in your pew Bible on page 62. Here now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. 
She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out here and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word from Matthew chapter 1 and Genesis 38. Today, I want us to get one thing. Tamar is waiting for the true justice, the lasting justice, the perfect justice of the coming deliverer. Tamar waits 
for the true justice of the coming deliverer. We're going to look at this passage in four parts. First, we're going to look at the descent of Judah. Second, the desperation of Tamar. Third, the deceptive solution. And fourth, the descendants. Now, Genesis 38 may be one of the least preached passages in the Bible. It's largely for two reasons. The first is that the Judah and Tamar story seems kind of like an interruption to the Joseph narrative we all love and treasure so dearly. At the end of Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery, broke the bad news to their dad about the untimely death of his favorite son. And the last thing that we are told is that Joseph was sold to Potiphar in Egypt. Then we get Judah and Tamar, Genesis 38, which rapidly covers a large period of time, enough time for Judah to get married and have three sons that grow up to be of marriageable age and then lose his wife in death. And then we jump right back in time to where we left off with Joseph at Potiphar's house in Egypt. That's one reason why Genesis 38 isn't preached that often. The second reason, well, it's pretty obvious. It has largely to do with the narrative itself. This passage contains death, sexual intercourse, both inside and outside of marriage, purposeful spilling of a man's seed, and prostitution. This is one of those sermons where a pastor has to tread carefully lest he bring something up that parents don't feel they're ready to talk to their children about yet. So I don't know if I'm going to do very well at that, but we'll find out. To tell you the truth, Genesis 38 is fraught with all the things that our holy sensibilities simply don't want to deal with. Nevertheless, Genesis 38 is essential in describing... What the author of Genesis calls the story of the family of Jacob. And the redirection of Judah from a place of disobedience and dishonor in the family of Jacob to one of prominence. Genesis 38 sets the scene for the future prophecy of Jacob that the scepter would not depart from the house of Judah. That he would rule over his brothers. The question is, how do we get... From the Judah of Genesis 38, who seems like a swell guy, sarcasm, to the Judah who volunteers to take the place of Benjamin as a prisoner in Egypt. This event in Judah's life is essential to our understanding of this. Not only that, but this event, of course, shows us the faithfulness of God in bringing the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. God will see his son, the deliverer, who will bring true justice, come into this world that he may pay for the sins of such like Judah, Tamar, and the rest of us. So let's get into the word. The first part is the descent of Judah. We read in the very first verse that around the time Joseph was sold in Egypt, Judah did a number of things which express a downward spiral and an abandonment of the promises of God given to Abraham. The first is that we are told he left his brothers. Now, this shouldn't be passed over quickly. It would be uncommon in those days for a member of a family to separate himself from the rest of the family unless he was doing something he knew would be disapproved of or unless he was at odds with his family members. The contrast here is obvious. Joseph is forcibly removed from his family. But what Jake, but Judah is doing here is voluntary. It's 
Obviously an act of disobedience. But it's not only that he left, but where he went when he left. We're told that he went down. He went down. This is not only a geographical term, but it should be keying the reader in to a representation of Judah's moral decline. And then, if you're not convinced by that, the author goes on to say that he turned aside to a man named Hira from Adullam. The NIV translates this as to stay with here. He turned aside. But this Hebrew verb is rarely used in the context of visiting a person or place, but it is often used figuratively of someone deviating from the path of righteousness. What Judah is doing here is simple. He's abandoning his people, the promised people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to fraternize with the Canaanites. Not only does he make friends with this here a gentleman, but we're also told that he marries a Canaanite woman, something that's already been looked frowned upon in the Genesis narrative. The daughter of Shua, or we could say Bathshua. The Hebrew here says Judah saw and took her. These words in the narrative of Genesis often denote an illicit kind of tanking. Think of Samson's encounters with the Philistine women. I saw her, I want her. This gives the idea that Judah knew that what he was doing was forbidden. He did it anyways, further displaying his moral descent. So what exactly will come of this frowned upon union? Well, we're told very quickly that three sons are born, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. We're told seemingly randomly that the location of the third son's birth is Kezib. Kezib is where Shelah was born, but... Why give us only this detail? Why tell us specifically where the third son was born? Why not tell us where the other sons were born? Well, Kezeb means town of lies. The narrator then is keying the reader in, foreshadowing the Judah's future deception about the promise to give Shelah to Tamar in marriage when he was old enough. So that's the, the descent of Judah. What I want us to see here is Judah is not in a good place in life right now. He's turned aside from the ways of righteousness and faithfulness to Yahweh God. What about the desperation of Tamar? What kind of desperate situation does she find herself? This covers verses 6 through 11 of the narrative in Genesis 38. Tamar enters the story because Judah finds a wife for his firstborn, Ur, And we're told Tamar is her name. Her name means palm tree, a word used in Song of Solomon to describe a woman of beautiful figure. Her name also would have denoted fruitfulness, something she would not experience in her marriage at all. A bit of an irony going on here. We read in verse 7 that Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We're not told why he was wicked, what he did that was wicked. We're simply told, wicked in the Lord's sight, and he's dead. So not only have we seen the descent of Judah and turning aside to the Canaanite way of life and marrying a Canaanite woman, something that his father Jacob would look, uh, look 
poorly upon. But in this moment, we get the idea that things are much worse than we thought. Judas completely abandoned the ways of Yahweh. And this can be seen in the complete and utter wickedness of his son. One commentator states that not since the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah has God taken the life of one who displeased him. And there it was groups who were annihilating. Ur is the first individual in scripture whom Yahweh kills. Boom. Dead. Things just went from bad to worse. And for Tamar, the situation is only going to become more desperate. Ur is dead, but Tamar had no children by him. So in verse 8, Judah tells his second son, Onan, to perform the duty of the widow's brother-in-law. In verse 8, it says, fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law. That's a lot of words in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's one word. It's one word. It's a single Hebrew word showing that this was a standard practice even prior to the giving of the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy. This refers to the Leverite law, lever meaning brother-in-law, which served to maintain the dead brother's name and inheritance. Simply put, Onan was to sleep with Tamar for the purpose of having a son that would not belong to him and not be his heir but would be the heir to his dead brother, Ur. There's a lot of distance in the way that Judah is speaking here between himself and Tamar. He doesn't use her name. He's only concerned with ensuring there is a descendant for his son. Now, if Ur was an evil man, even though we do not know what sort of actions his wickedness consisted of, and we are told a little bit more about the wickedness of Onan. Onan is a greedy man. What we need to see happening in this encounter is that he doesn't want to give Tamar a son because he knows that the seed, that's what it says in the Hebrew, would not belong to him. And that son would then be considered the firstborn of Judah and receive the double portion of Judah's inheritance. But Onan is thinking right now, hey, if Ur doesn't have a descendant, I'm going to receive the double portion. And my heirs will receive the double portion. And I want that. I want, I want that double inheritance. I don't want to have to take care of a kid that's not going to be mine. Onan's also lustful. Because you see here that he's okay with publicly obeying this law, making it appear as though he is doing the duty of a brother to raise up the name of his dead brother. And so we're told he has sexual relations with Tamar. The whenever in our text... So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, expresses a frequency of occurrences, not simply a one-time event. But in private, we are told, in the NIV, he spilled his semen on the ground so as to deny Tamar the heir for heir, for Ur. And in doing so, rejected the promise 
to Abraham that his seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He was only thinking about himself. He was only thinking about indulging himself. He wasn't thinking about being selfless. He has no problem using Tamar for his own sexual gratification, but he will not fulfill his obligation to her. He remains, he keeps Tamar in that difficult, weak, and dangerous position in that culture. To be a widow is to be the most vulnerable person of that society. This, of course, displeases God, who then strikes Onan dead, just as he did his brother, Ur. Tamar's situation is getting more and more desperate. I mean, what's Judah supposed to do now? He's given two of his sons to this woman, and every time he gives a son to this woman, boom, they're dead. The Leverite law, though, is still in effect, so his son, Sheila, must now fulfill his duty to bring up an heir for Ur. But what would you do? Two of your sons had died in association with this woman, Tamar. You see, Judah is not seeing the ways of the Lord here. He gets suspicious. He thinks maybe there's some kind of curse on this woman. He doesn't look at his sons who were wicked and say, God struck them dead. He looks at Tamar and says, something's wrong with her. So he's reluctant to give his last and only son to her, lest he die as well. He spins a lie. We get the idea that this is not a promise he's going to keep. Hey, Sheila's too young to marry, so Tamar, why don't you go back and live at your father's house, live as a widow until Sheila's old enough, and then I'll give Sheila to you. This is out of practice. If Judah... Intended on keeping his promise, he would have kept her at his household and cared for her needs as he was supposed to do. But he wants her out of sight, out of mind. So here she is, sent off to be cared for by her father, betrothed to Sheila and thus not free to marry anyone else, stuck in limbo, tossed off. Judah's essentially washed his hands of this Woman, and by putting her in this position, she leaves to go live once again in her father's house, waiting on the promise that Judah has given to her. What about this desperate solution, this desperate situation? How is Tamar going to get free from this? Well, let's look at the deceptive solution in verses 12 through 26. There's a lot of passing of time going on here where Judah's Canaanite wife dies. And at this point, Tamar's caught on to the injustice Judah has done to her. He's left her in an unmarriable and unprotected and invulnerable condition. Widows at this time did not have sons to care for them. Were the marginalized in society. This is why you often have this constant refrain in the Old Testament that God desires that his people would care for the widows and the orphans. Tamar cannot marry. Judah has no intention on giving his son Sheila to her. So when Tamar hears that Judah is going to be coming by her father's house on his way to the festive time of the shearing of sheep in Timnah, she puts this 
unorthodox plan into action. A plan that seems very bizarre to our more modern Western way of thinking. She took off her widow's clothes, a constant visible reminder of the injustice that had been done to her, the promise that had gone unfulfilled, and put on a veil to cover her identity and disguise herself as a cult prostitute. Temple prostitution was a common practice among the Canaanites, specifically during festive times as we were described here, the shearing of the sheep. The idea was they believed that they could perform these cultic acts Enlist the services of a prostitute, a shrine prostitute, to ensure the fertility of their people, their land, and their livestock. Tamar then goes, she waits at the entrance of Anaim for her father-in-law to walk by. Anaim, ironically, means the opening of the eyes. Some more foreshadowing of the eye-opening experience that Tamar's deception will function as in the life of Judah. Judah then sees her. takes her to be a prostitute, and elicits her services. The biblical author wants the reader to be clear that if Judah had known it was his daughter-in-law, he would not have had relations with her. That would have been inappropriate and wrong. Of course, elicit these services of prostitutes, wrong period. But Tamar's playing this deception perfectly. She begins to strike a deal with Judah, a price for her services. He desires her so badly that he's even willing to give her his personal insignia. When it says here that, what should I give you? She says, your seal and its cord, the staff in your hand. That would have been the equivalent of giving them your driver's license, your credit card. And to ensure that she would receive the payment of that young goat. This, of course, continues to show us the sharp moral decline of Judah, the promising son of Jacob. So Judah went into her. She conceived. She got up, went back to her father's house, took off her veil, put her widow's clothes back on, and she waited. Judah, of course, wanting to get his personal identification back, sends his friend to make the payment. Bruce Walkie says that Judah is like a reputable gentleman who unwittingly loses his credit card in a brothel. But his friend Hira can't find the woman, and so Judah says, well, I tried, and leaves it at that, concerned that any further investigation will cause his reputation to be in question. I don't know what sort of reputation he's trying to protect, but we get the idea that he finds his name and his family uh, to be an object of pride. But three months pass, and Tamar in her widow's clothes begins to show. And maybe she even sends this messenger to Judah herself to inform Judah, hey, Tamar is stuck in limbo, betrothed to your son, Sheila, that you're never going to give to her in marriage. She's pregnant. She's guilty of prostitution. And Judah, he's furious. His family and his reputation is going to be damaged now. He makes a quick and harsh judgment, giving no opportunity for hearing. She is to be burned alive. Or maybe even in his wickedness, he thinks 
Finally, here's my moment to be rid of this woman. That way I have no obligation to her. And finally, I'll be rid of her. And I can give my son Sheila in marriage to someone else who's not cursed and won't kill my third son just like she did the first two sons. I mean, it's, this is really rather ironic, this whole moment. Judah is the one who's withholding justice from Tamar by not giving Sheila to marriage, to her in marriage. And he is the one who's guilty of prostitution. Yet he's the one pointing the finger, seeking to grasp an opportunity to get rid of this woman who, from his perspective, is the reason his two sons are dead. And as she was being brought out to be burned, Tamar reveals the deceptive solution to the injustices she had received. She had Judah be shown as personal items, the ones that identified who she was pregnant by. And just like the place where she met him, his eyes were open. He's the father. And in that moment, we see repentance from Judah. A shift in the narrative that describes for us, the reader, that the descent of Judah is now going in a different direction. He says, she is more righteous than I. Now, I don't know what's shocking to you, but it's shocking to me that when I hear about a woman who is denied an heir, so she dresses up and disguises herself as a prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law, and then he says the words, she is more righteous than I. Seems a little bizarre to me. But that's because oftentimes when we hear the word righteous, we think of it in that sin sort of way. Righteous means not sin, good, opposite of sin, right? But here, this word has more of a sense of, she is more right than me. She's in the right. I'm in the wrong. He declares his own guilt. He says, She's justified in what she's doing because I have withheld Sheila from her. I have put her in this vulnerable situation and condition. And I have denied her an heir. This is the beginning of Judah's transformation. We're even told very specifically, and he did not sleep with her again. After this, he will return to his brothers, show great concern for his aging father, and even offer himself in the place of his brother Benjamin when they meet Joseph in Egypt. But here, Tamar is the hero. Tamar suffered injustice at the hands of Judah, but she was determined to have a child in Judah's family. One commentator says, such determination to propagate descendants of Abraham, especially by a Canaanite woman, is remarkable. And so despite her foreign background and irregular behavior, Tamar emerges as the heroine of this story. People of God, what we see here is that a Canaanite woman who dressed up as a prostitute 
becomes in God's providence the one who ensures that the seed of the woman lives to fight another day against the seed of the serpent. And lastly, we read about these descendants. The last three verses of Genesis 38 express the importance of Tamar's unorthodox solution to her situation of injustice. She gives birth to twins by Judah, Perez and Zerah. And Perez becomes the firstborn. Of course, we see in this moment a lot of allusions to the other uh, patriarchal verse and narratives in Genesis. And Perez, his name will appear once again in a genealogy in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amenadab. Amenadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. See, I told you I'd bring Ruth into this, even though we aren't going to have one sermon on her. You see, Genesis 38 is important for Israel because it shows how their great king David came to be and almost didn't come to be. Genesis 38, although, is of great importance to redemptive history because as we are told in Matthew chapter 1 that we read at the beginning of this sermon, Tamar is a foremother of Christ. And if you think Tamar's story is weird, trust me, there are no uh, clean stories in the mothers of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab, I have something to say about her. Uh, Bathsheba, yeah, she's not perfect. Uh, You know, Ruth, she's got some strange things going on. You see what I'm saying? The messiness of this story shows us that God can accomplish his salvation even through Israel's disobedience and the deception of a Canaanite woman. And if I were to add a fifth point to this sermon, in keeping with that wonderful D alliteration, it would be to tell you of the deliverer. You see, the ultimate injustice done in Genesis 38 was not at the hands of Judah to Tamar or them to one another. Rather, the ultimate injustice was their own sins before a holy and righteous God. And God was determined to work within that sin in order to bring into this world His Son, Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham, the head crusher. Tamar was waiting for this deliverer, the one who would bring true justice by bearing in His body, the body that He put on on that first advent when He was born, the Virgin Mary, In his body, the wrath of God for her sins, for Judah's sins, for our sins. And this Advent season, we rejoice in the incarnation of the Son of God who took on flesh that he may live and die in order to accomplish salvation for our sins. That incarnation brought about true justice, that we may be right with God, but also it is the promise of a king who will righteously rule with justice 
and the coastlands wait for his law. So that by faith in Christ, we are told in Romans 3, God can both be just and the justifier of sinners. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing your son, Jesus Christ, into this world. We thank you that you work within the messiness of sinful people to bring about the perfect and sinless Savior. Father, we pray this Advent season we would continue to come to know all the more the love you have for us in Jesus Christ who is our only comfort in life and death and who has rescued us from the tyranny of the devil. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.